1 Samuel chapter 20, hear the word of the Lord. Then David fled from Nioth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, Tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says, good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant. For you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow, or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you, as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die, And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed, because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand, and remain beside the stone heap, and I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy, saying, Go find the arrows. If I say to the boy, Look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them. Then you are to come, for as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, Look, the arrows are beyond you, then go." For the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, Something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. 
So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning... Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The college of our particular denomination is called Covenant College. The seminary of our denomination is called Covenant Seminary. And if you travel around the United States and you find a church of the Presbyterian Church in America, you will find that many of our churches are called Covenant Presbyterian Church, or simply Covenant Church, or sometimes New Covenant Church. Every Sunday, we use the word covenant when we share the Lord's Supper together. This word covenant shows up in the Bible over 300 times. And it's an important word because it's an important concept. And what we have here in this text is the operation of a covenant that was made in chapter 18 between David and Saul's son, Jonathan. And what we're going to do is look at the history and how the covenant functions in this human-to-human relationship and then back up and try to see what the pattern of this covenant is in other relationships and other levels. So what we have first is we have a covenant test. There's a relationship here that's being tested because there is a sharp disagreement about facts. And this happens with human beings who are in relationship with each other. One says, this is how it is, and the other says, no, that's not true. And they had a very, very sharp and serious disagreement between them. Now, if you recall from last week, Saul had been temporarily incapacitated. Saul, in chapter 19, made four attempts on David's life. And the last attempt 
the, a spirit from God or the spirit of the Lord, it's kind of ambiguous, incapacitated Saul and caused him to prophesy. And so Saul was not able to carry out his plan against David. So after escaping five times, what we have in this chapter is that David made good on his escape and he went to Jonathan, his dear friend. And he went to Jonathan and said, why is your father trying to kill me? Verse 1, what have I done? What is my sin that he seeks my life? And then Jonathan's response is, you're wrong. David, that is not how it is. So this is a serious agreement. David accuses Jonathan's own father of wanting to be a murderer. And, and Jonathan sticks up for his father. He says, that's not the way it is. And Jonathan bases his objection to David's interpretation of things on what his father told him. If you look at chapter 19, verse 6, the first time that Saul had mentioned in Jonathan's presence about wanting to do away with David, Jonathan intervened, and he convinced his father. And then Saul said this in 19.6, Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan believed his father. He believed that, that that oath that he had made before the Lord was still in effect. And so he thought, this is impossible. David has to be mistaken. And so there's a very serious disagreement here. David then, in verses 3 to 7, tried to convince Jonathan, and he proposed a test, a test to find out what Saul's purpose was. And the test was this new moon festival where there would be a dinner a feast, and David would be expected to come, but would he really be expected to come after Saul had, had tried to take his life? But his absence would be notorious at any rate. It would, it would require some explanation. And so what happened here in verse 8, in the midst of this serious disagreement between friends, notice that there is an appeal to the covenant that they had made. In verse 8, therefore, this is David to Jonathan. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. And if you go back to chapter 18, verse 3, you read about that covenant. It says this, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And then Jonathan stripped off his clothes and his armor, and he gave it to David symbolically handing the kingdom over to David. And so there's an appeal here to the covenant. And what is a covenant? Well, there are different definitions of covenant, but we don't need to get too complicated. The Bible never defines covenant, but looking at what a covenant, the use of this in the Bible, we find that it is simply an agreement or a pact between two parties. Sometimes these parties are equal parties. Sometimes these parties are unequal parties. And the superior party, if it is, there is a superior party, a king or the Lord himself, dictates to the inferior party the terms of the covenant. If it's a covenant between two parties, they kind of hammer out the details as we would do with some sort of a contract. Usually in the covenants we find in scripture, there is either explicitly or implicitly, there are blessings for fidelity to the terms of the covenant, and there are curses for transgressions of the covenant. Normally, that's involved in the covenant language. Now, at first, you notice 
that Jonathan was the superior party in this covenant. In verse 8, therefore, David says to Jonathan, deal kindly with your what? With your servant. Jonathan is the heir apparent to the throne. He's the, he's the prince that's in waiting. And so David takes his place and says, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Now, David recognized that if he personally had violated something serious about this covenant, that, that the covenant was off. Look at verse 8, the rest of it. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? Actually, the covenant would be not off, but rather he would be inheriting the, 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 the curses of the covenant if he had, if he had done something serious, uh, treasonous. Now, Jonathan acknowledged the obligations of the covenant placed on him. In verse 4, Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. He recognized that he was under obligation to do what David was asking him to do. And then if you look at verse 9, Jonathan said, Far be it from you, if I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Going against family ties, he says, I'm obligated to tell you. Why? Because there was a covenant that was established between them. And then in verse 12, he invoked the Lord. He invoked the Lord. Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, our translations supply two words that are not in the Hebrew. The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. Those aren't in there, but our translation is a good translation. That's the idea. And there's this serious disagreement. There's a covenant that both of them are obligated to, to honor, and the Lord is the witness between the two parties in this covenant. He also invoked curse upon himself, upon himself, if he did not fulfill the terms of the covenant. Verse 13, but, if, but should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do to Jonathan, the Lord do to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. He's, he's calling down curses on himself if he does not fulfill the terms of the covenant. And so then he wished for David the presence of the Lord. Verse 14, if I am still alive, um, no, I'm sorry, the end of 13, may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. Now we the readers we, we, we sense some irony here, don't we? Jonathan knows less than we do about his father. And so we know that the Lord has left Saul. We, we read last week that the Lord is with David. The Lord is with David. The Lord is with David. And Saul himself knew that the Lord had abandoned him. But Jonathan did not understand that. And so there's some irony here when he blesses David and says, may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. And we want to raise our hands and say, no, he's no longer with your father. And then after that, he envisioned a time when the tables would be turned, when he would be the inferior party and that David would be the superior party. And he's already voluntarily stripped off the symbols of his own kingship and given those to David. He understood that one day that David would be the superior. And notice what he does here. Verse 14, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord. 
The steadfast love of the Lord, that, that word is translated variously here, steadfast love, that, it, that I may not die. And you might ask, well, why, why is he worried about dying? Well, he says, and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Now, standard operating procedure for new regime is to eliminate all of the members of the previous regime. That hasn't changed. That is still standard operating procedure. Now, in some cases, it's, it's death. Now, in our republic, it's thankfully not death, but it's the whole, the whole uh, administration that has been voted out of office is, is dismissed, and they're unemployed, and they're sent packing. But in this time, the standard procedure would be, if there's a new monarch, that new monarch does away with all of the family of the previous monarch. And he's saying, when, when you are king and, and I am your subject, don't do that to me. Remember faithful, steadfast love. And now look at verse 16. It says in our translation, And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. But he had just said, but may I and my household not be among those enemies. There is a play on words here that is, is, is not easy to bring out. Um, the verb to cut, the verb to cut. In, in the Hebrew idiom, the idea of making a covenant, they use the word cut, to cut a covenant. And the probable idea of that is that there is a, an implicit threat in there. A covenant is cut because if somebody breaks the terms of the covenant, what happens to that person? That person gets cut off. And so here he says, and do not cut off your steadfast love for my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth and David, our translation said, made a covenant. It simply says this. It doesn't use the word covenant. It simply says, and David cut with the house of David, saying, may the Lord take vengeance on all David's enemies. This is the play on words here. It's saying, may we not be cut off because we have cut together a covenant. Do you see what the protection for, for Jonathan's family in the future will be? It's that a covenant was cut and he has not violated the terms thereof. Now, as in chapter 18, verse 3, what motivated the covenant? We find it once again in verse 17. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him. That's why the covenant started in the first place, because of love. For he loved him as he loved his own soul. So here the covenant is being tested. And now we see in verses 18 to 34... We see covenant loyalty, and Jonathan took charge of the test, that test that David had proposed about the new moon, moon feast. Well, David takes charge, or rather, Jonathan takes charge of it, and then David had asked, who's going to get me the information? After you find out about your dad, who's going to come and tell me? And so they set up this kind of complicated signal with the arrows David hides in the field, Jonathan's going to shoot three arrows, he's going to say to the boy either, I think they're on this side of you, and that means David, come back, everything's okay. Or, I think they're beyond you, so David, take off. Now this was set up 
in case it would have been unsafe for David and Jonathan to meet. As it turns out, they were able to meet, but this was a, a precaution. If they were not able to meet face to face, then this, this sign would tell David what to do. And once again, in verse 23, we have an invocation of the Lord. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. What's the matter? The matter is the covenant and how this is going to play out in this situation. Now, on the second day of the new moon celebration, we have Jonathan getting to put into play this, this test. And he says, well, David asked me for permission. And there may be some deception going on here, or there may well have been a, a celebration in David's hometown, and his brother may well have told him he wanted to go. But however that might be, uh, Jonathan says, oh, he asked me, he asked me permission not to, not to come. And Saul showed his colors immediately in verse 30. His, his anger was kindled against Jonathan. The Hebrew idiom is that his nose became hot against Jonathan. And he said to him, he started, he started denouncing him, you son of a, he went also denouncing his mother, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and the shame of your mother's nakedness? Why is he so angry with his son? Well, he, he, he shows his cards in verse 31. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Saul knew because the Lord had told him that he had lost the kingship. Saul knew because the Lord had told him through Samuel that he had lost the dynasty. But perhaps, perhaps he could have at least one more generation of his family in charge. And he was resting his hopes on his son, Jonathan. One more generation of family rule. And then in keeping with his commitment to David, verse 32, Jonathan answered and stuck up for David. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? And then Saul does something very irrational. He hurled his spear at him to strike him. Have we seen that before? Twice he's done exactly that to David, and now he does it to David's friend, his own son. I say this is becoming irrational. Saul seems to be becoming more and more irrational because what does he want? He wants his son to inherit the kingdom. But if he strikes him down with his spear, he's not going to inherit the kingdom. And so there's, a, there's, there's a, a, an irrationality about Saul's actions here that, that, that seem to be more and more erratic. Then it was Jonathan's term, turn to be angry in verse 34. But we find that Jonathan was angry not because his father had just thrown a spear at him. He's angry. He was grieved because his father had disgraced David. His father had disgraced David. And his, his covenant loyalty to David obligated him to choose sides against even his own father when David was in the right and his father was in the wrong. And then the final movement of this, this chapter is covenant peace. Covenant peace. Jonathan proceeded to give the sign in verses 35 to 40. He tells the boy, he shoots arrows and tells the boy to keep going. They're farther on. The boy gathers the arrows. Then he gives his armament to the, the boy. He sends him back into the city. And it turned out that it was safe for them to talk. And so we have this, this parting of David and Jonathan, this poignant parting in verse 41. 
And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. David still recognizes that he's the inferior party here. And when they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. And then Jonathan said to him, go in peace. Go in peace. And what's the basis for this blessing of shalom? Because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, the Lord shall be between me and you. And then he adds here something interesting. Two more details. One of them he's already mentioned, the other implicitly, but here he spells it out. This covenant, this agreement includes our offspring as well. They have made a covenant not just for themselves, but they have made a covenant for their offspring, which is a characteristic that we find of covenants between my offspring and your offspring forever, forever, for all generations. And then they rose and they departed and Jonathan went into the city. So that's the story of the covenant between David and Jonathan. But what we have done is that we have jumped into the river downstream by looking at this man-to-man covenant. And so what we're going to do now is back up back upstream and said, and ask ourselves, where did this idea come from in the first place? Where did they get the idea to, to make this kind of an agreement? And what we discover is that human-to-human covenants reflect God-to-human covenants. There is a divine pattern to covenant because God, when he relates to his creation and particularly to his people, he does so through covenants that he, the sovereign, establishes with them. The language of covenant appears when God established relationships with representative figures and their descendants. You can think of Adam and his posterity, Noah and his posterity, Abraham and his offspring, Moses and his people. And then later in 2 Samuel, we find that God makes a covenant with David and with his house forever. And so this is God's structure in his relationships with his people. And then we find, after those covenants, we find the prophets. And the prophets foretell a day, particularly in Jeremiah, when there will be a new covenant. And Jeremiah describes it in chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more that's the new covenant that God would make and what we find in the New Testament is that Jesus is the one that that brought into effect that covenant. We've actually read this verse twice so far in our service, to open the service and then in our New Testament reading, but I'm going to read it again. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant 
so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. But I want you to notice something about this this ratification of this new covenant. A death has taken place. But we ask ourselves, the death of whom? The death of the violators of the covenant? The death of the transgressors of the covenant? That's how covenants are structured. So that the ones who break the terms of the covenant, they're the ones who are cut. But if you notice in the case of Jesus, he's the one who kept the terms of the covenant, but he also suffered the negative sanctions, the punishments that the transgressors of the covenants deserve. Which is why, as Jeremiah predicted, that that all of our iniquities can be forgiven. All of our sins can be wiped out. Why? Because the surety of the covenant has taken them upon himself and he has suffered the, the punishment that the transgressors deserve. So what's the takeaway? The takeaway is this. It's very, very practical. This may sound like abstruse theological language, but it's very, very practical. When you get up in the morning, what is God's, if you are in Christ, if you are a believer in Christ, when you get up in the morning, what is God's posture towards you? When you work your way through the day and you stumble your way through the day, what is God's attitude towards you? It is love. It is faithful, steadfast love. How do you know that? Because of the frame of your mind? Because of the level of your holiness? No, because the covenant-making God is the covenant-keeping God, and Christ has inaugurated and sealed that covenant, and his attitude, if you are in Christ, will never change. It is steadfast love towards you. We sang about that today. We sang that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. What's the sweetest frame? My best attitudes. But holy trust in Jesus' name. And then that second verse, when darkness seems to veil his face, to hide his face, what do I rest on? His unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. And listen to the third verse. His oath, his covenant, his blood protect me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other else, all other ground is what? It's sinking sand. And that's why we can sing the fourth verse. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. But it doesn't end there. Because our God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God, we can be covenant keepers as well we enter into covenant if you have been baptized into the church of jesus christ you have entered into a covenant it's a solemn covenant and you can keep that solid covenant 
You can, you can order your life according to that covenant, not according to your moment-by-moment convenience. And this will determine how you make decisions throughout your life and throughout your day. You will consult the covenant. Did you notice what, what David and Jonathan did? They consulted the covenant. Let's see, what are the terms we have here? Does this mean I have to even go against my own family? Didn't Jesus say something about that? He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves children is not worthy of me. The covenant determines, even if that means a breaking of other relationships by their their animosity toward us as Christians. You see, if you are a baptized Christian, you have the mark of the covenant that is permanently on you. And that identifies you as a believer in Christ. And that tells you how to live moment by moment. If you have or will enter into the covenant of marriage, then this covenant is what's going to keep your your marriage together. Because your marriage, like every marriage, is going to go through situations in which there are sharp disagreements. And and what's going to keep it together? Or, Or you may go through very, very difficult changes in yourself or in your spouse as as life affects you. But if both parties are committed not to their own convenience, but committed to the covenant that they have made, what do we say in marriages and in weddings? Before God and these witnesses, then when those tough times come, it's What's the covenant say? If your wedding was like mine, there were those clauses about better or worse, sickness and in health, in poverty and in want, as long as we both shall live. If you have entered into a covenant for the salvation of your children and you have had the sign of the covenant applied to your children, then what will determine how you raise those children? Your level of exhaustion or the level of irritation that they are causing you that day or the stresses that are mounting up in your life or the bills that need to be paid? Those are all realities about parenting. But what will govern your treatment of your children is the covenant that you have made for their salvation so that you can raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord to listen to them once again, to discipline them once again, to instruct them once again, to love them once again, even when they're not being particularly lovely. Some of you may know the the name B.B. Warfield, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield. That sounds like a theology professor, doesn't it? And he was. He died just over 100 years ago. He was a a theology professor at at Princeton Seminary, and he wrote, I have his 10-volume set, but he wrote more than that. But there's a little-known fact, and the facts, the details are very murky, very murky about his marriage. But as far as we can determine, on his honeymoon, on his honeymoon while he was in Germany, something happened. As I say, the details are murky about a storm that came up, a lightning strike, and it's not clear if his new bride was struck or simply so traumatized by the event that she was never the
the same again. This is his, his newlywed bride. They'd been married a matter of days, and she was, for reasons that are not clear, she was, she was changed. This wasn't the bride he had signed up for. This was not the bride he married. But what did he do? He loved her his entire life until death separated them. This kept him from being able to travel This kept him from being able to be involved in some of the great debates that were going on in the church of that day. But what did he do? He taught his students, and he lived on the campus as well. He taught his students, he wrote books, and he loved his wife. Now, why did he do that? Because of the covenant. Kind of worst-case scenario, isn't it? On the honeymoon, to have your, your bride transformed into something else but he had made a covenant before God and witnesses and that covenant was strong enough to keep them together that works of course when both are committed to the covenant now this is one of the most powerful things you can do and that is to keep your covenants It's one of the most powerful things you can do in this world because we live in a world that is obsessed with individual self-expression. What is convenient to me in the moment is sovereign. That's how our culture operates. And if you are a covenanter, then you are going against the flow of our world, especially our individualistic Western world but is one of the most powerful statements and most powerful testimonies that you can have in this world. By your faithful keeping of covenant with God, with your church, with your spouse, with your children, or whatever covenants you might have in your life, this is one of the most powerful statements about our covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. Let's pray. Our God, we praise you today that you do not treat us as our sins deserve, nor do you treat us in a fickle way. You don't treat us one way one minute, another way the next minute. Lord, you have pledged yourself to us, and the blood of Christ has ratified that pledge. I pray for all of us that we would be in Christ and so know that that steadfast love that will never change. And I pray, O oh God, that having been the beneficiaries of your covenant with us in Christ, that we would be covenant keepers in all of our relationships and so declare to the world that, that we are people of the covenant, people of the God who makes and keeps his covenant with us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.